Hi everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of Risk and Regulation Rundown, giving you the latest insight and analysis on hot topics in financial services risk and regulation. I'm Andrew Strange, and I lead our financial services regulatory insights team, and I'm your usual host. Back in 2022, we dedicated an episode to the UK revision of the Solvency II regime, which got great feedback as firms grappled with the capital efficiency, but also how the UK was tackling its rulemaking outside of a European framework. Today, I'm delighted to say it's the turn of our banking listeners, and we're going to focus on the changes to the banking prudential regime in the UK. Now, unlike Solvency II, the Basel 3.1 changes are global. However, the impact on firms and how both the UK and our European regulatory friends choose to implement it will be more than familiar, as will the breadth of impact on everybody. I'm delighted to be joined by two guests, Gordon Kemp and Stephanie Aspen, both of whom work in PwC's risk and regulation practice and specialise in prudential regulation. So welcome to you both. Hi. Hi, great to be here. So, Gordon, perhaps we could start with a quick overview of the PRA's recent proposals. How do they compare to the actual Basel standard? Uh, and are there any areas where the PRA has taken a noticeably different approach? So I guess the big picture is that the UK has broadly aligned with the, the Basel rules. Uh, and that's not surprising given the UK was very influential when they were kind of drafting the rules and negotiating with the other, other kinds of parties. Um, but the UK has gone further in a number of areas, uh, including more model restrictions than are applied in, in other countries. Um, and they've taken a UK-specific approach for a number of um, specific areas, things like unrated corporates, where the UK has come up with a more risk-sensitive approach. Um, but as mentioned, they've gone further in restricting models for things like exposure to sovereigns. Um, but big picture is um, sort of alignment with Basel, but with a kind of UK super-equivalent UK lens on, on some of the, the individual aspects. Um, in terms of the big changes, though, it's, it's kind of new standardised approaches across the board, um, the most material and significant of which for firms is likely to be credit risk. Great, thank you. So that sounds awkwardly different, which I think is the phrase for a lot of UK regulation compared to, to where other jurisdictions are going at the moment. Um, Steph, OK, so as Gordon says, credit risk is an area of significant change. So do you want to just talk us through those proposals? Sure. So obviously we've got two approaches firms can use to calculate credit risk capital requirements, the standardised approach and the internal modelled or IRB approach. On the standardised side, the requirements are becoming much more granular and risk sensitive. So what that means is there's winners in terms of lower risk segments and losers in terms of perceived higher risk segments. So on the winners side, we've got um, product segments like credit cards to borrowers who repay their full balance and unrated corporates deemed as being investment grade. While on the losers side, we've got a number of um, more niche higher risk mortgage segments, SMEs, trade finance and a number of others. Safe to say there's probably more losers than winners. On the IRB side then, we've got significant restrictions on the use of the of internal models, particularly for segments such as banks, um, financial institutions, large corporates, sovereigns, equity. Um, and we've also got increased flaws on the model input parameters. And then tying this all together, we have an overall output flaw um, across all risk types that constrains the benefit firms can get from using internal models. That's interesting. And, and thinking about that, in the current economic environment, if you're, if you're um, rewarding those people that clear their credit cards but potentially have more vulnerable customers, actually some of this stuff you know, will be impacted by where, where we are in the, the cycle as well, I suppose. So, I mean, that, that approach, is that consistent with what we're seeing, uh, say, in the EU compared to the UK? 
I think I understand that the, the latter is still going through its legislative process, but do we have any any views or implications? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the kind of um, political aspects of regulation come in here because a lot of countries in the EU, such as you know Poland, Finland, Denmark, and others, didn't have any opportunity in the Basel process to be able to to give their views, and and so they're inputting through the EU legislative process in general. Um, similarly, parliamentarians, uh, council members, others all have kind of vested interests in certain aspects of the package and in, in certain angles, whether that's kind of ESG type stuff or whether it's uh, lending to small and medium enterprise businesses. Um, there's lots of different views that come through in, in the EU package. Um, but where they're going directionally is that they're, they're kind of diverging from Basel more than was expected, perhaps. Um, and there has been a lot of uh, pressure on them to kind of come back to Basel and come back to the kind of international approach on a, a lot of the, uh, these aspects. Um, ECB and EBA have both come out with opinions saying that um, they're not happy with the direction of travel, saying that uh, there's a risk that um, the EU will be deemed non-compliant. Um, and similarly, now that we have the UK rules, there's kind of added political pressure on the EU because it becomes a bit more of a, an outlier, a bit more... Uh, di divergent. Um, so certainly as we go into the, the trilogue process um, you know, some of the positions from the Parliament and, and the Council are trying to bring it back towards uh, you know, Basel compliance in, in some areas, um, but that's not going to be across the board. Um, in terms of big picture, what, what they're doing is they're kind of delaying a lot of the aspects and the rules. They're introducing transitional arrangements, which kind of soften the blow um, from a capital perspective for some time. Uh, and some of those preferential uh, treatments such as for small and medium enterprises and infrastructure lending. They're wanting to maintain these these um, kind of supporting factors because of the, the kind of political um, you know, nature of these and, and you know, to support lending to, to these um, preferential uh, groups. So, Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. I suppose, again, plays to that economic cycle point and, and the politics that you talked about. We, we had Michael Huertas, who's a, a PwC partner from Germany, on in, in January this year, talking about some of the, the European views of what the UK is doing. And I think I would characterise it as a bit of sort of FOMO, really. So if the UK is settling itself on a, on a good position and, and Europe's doing something slightly different, some of the policymakers at a European level might find that slightly uncomfortable, actually. And obviously we have elections next year, which, which potentially slow down some of that process. But, but the UK has definitely had more freedom in terms of the PRA. They've been given you know, a strong mandate from the UK politicians. And so far, the UK politicians are getting less involved in trying to kind of you know, impose their will, uh, which is a kind of a, a difference uh, to the EU, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting that that political landscape in the UK is very, very live at the moment. So, I mean, Europe's very interesting, UK very interesting. I don't think we've heard about the US yet. What, what's happening over there? So we haven't seen the US proposals yet. Uh, they're expected in the first quarter of, of this year. Um, and they, they have a challenge in that they have a slightly different regulatory framework. They have a, a US standardised approach that's not consistent with the international one. Um, there's key aspects of it that are missing from, from their standardised approach. And those include operational risk and the credit valuation adjustment uh, charge. Um, and they have a, a, an output floor already, which is inbuilt into um, their legislative framework. Uh, so it's called the Collins floor, came um, from the Dodd-Frank uh, Act and the, the point of post-crisis reforms. But they have a very difficult challenge of being able to implement these new reforms uh, whilst also kind of keeping that 
uh, capital flow that they already have in place. Um, it's difficult to see exactly where they're going to go. What they want to do is maintain the overall quantum of capital um, and you know have a differentiation of approach for internationally active banks and the kind of community or state banks um, that that are kind of more common in, in uh, other bank other uh, areas of of the US. Um, but they may do something drastic, like completely remove the IRB advanced credit risk approach, and and kind of simplify the system just down to two ratios. But you know we're we're all waiting to see what what they're going to do. Um, they were definitely waiting as well for the UK and the EU to publish to kind of understand where divergences were going to go in an international context. Again, fragmented is the word that springs to mind here. But okay, interesting. And and just just to say, we're very difficult, uh, very different political environment now to where we were before. I mean, it was Trump that was in power, or you know, his his reign has been uh, intermean in between the two periods of when the rules were finalised, uh, and that now we have like a. a a kind of US agencies all filled with political appointees from the Biden administration. So very different environment to where we were um, when these rules were finalised. Let's see where we get to next year. So, um, Steph, uh, I know that as part of our roles, we, we often spend time talking to regulators and talking to regulatory affairs functions and our clients and so on as well. I mean, have we got any insights that we're hearing from regulators? Um, I think as the conversations just alluded to, we are at a really interesting juncture here. This is really the first time in a long time, the PRA has had autonomy in making rules in the potential context outside of the European um, environment. So I think the PRA has really reiterated that this is an open consultation and they're very open to receiving data and ideas from the industry on key aspects of the proposals. In particular, um, I think this specifically relates to elements where they've been tougher than the EU. So aspects like unrated corporates, SMEs, um, trade finance or the approach to property valuations. Um, and they're also specifically interested in understanding the impacts on firms that might have more niche business models and how they can mitigate those impacts for certain um, sectors of the industry that might be more affected. So I think they're really engaged. They're looking for data and evidence to substantiate changes to the rules. And hopefully we see that play out over the next couple of months. Okay, great. Uh, and again, consistent with a lot of the messaging we're hearing around a range of regulatory issues where regulators really are looking for solutions and, and evidence to, to do the right thing. I mean, that's really useful. So, I mean, from a firm's perspective, though, is this is this about just changing capital requirements or do firms need to think about wider angles to this reform package? I mean, absolutely not. It's absolutely not just a compliance change. I think this is the most fundamental change to bank capital requirements in over 15 years. So obviously that means the implementation challenge is going to be significant. Um, we've got, um, again, I guess against that backdrop, there's a huge importance of aligning Basel 3.1 implementation with broader strategic priorities. So integrating with wider regulatory changes, risk management changes, data or technology priorities. Um, we know we're in a market where the PRAs have had a huge focus in recent years on controls and data, governance systems, the reliability of regulatory reporting and banks' capital numbers that are being reported. So obviously there's a huge amount of change going on and firms need to be um, tackling this in an integrated manner. The other aspect is, I think, given the increased complexity and granularity of the rules, um, firms now need to manage new potential binding constraints like the output floor, which constrains the benefit firms can get from using internal models. Um, so in tackling the reforms, I think firms really need to think about how they uh, do capital planning, how they do pricing, how they structure their products in order to optimise returns on capital in the new world. And these processes might need to be... Um, 
reviewed and kind of set up at a much more granular level to capture differential risk requirements and capital requirements and to incentivize behaviors that could potentially be beneficial from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, thanks, Steph. And I, I was recently reading some of the supervisory priorities from, from the regulators and it was financial resilience was clearly up there, but you're right, there's a very long list of other things firms need to, to think about holistically. So, Gordon, I mean, it's not technically been settled yet, but the PRA and the FCA look like they're going to get their new secondary international competition objectives alongside their existing requirements to, to consider the impacts on the UK domestic market. So what does that mean for sort of for the future of banking from a competition perspective? I mean, we talked a little bit about winners and losers uh, with respect to different products or uh, asset classes, but there's definitely winners and losers in terms of uh, banks and banking models. Uh, if you think of the the large universal banks with a full suite of moral permissions, they're the losers in this. Uh, the w- the ones that benefit the most are the banks that are on standardised approaches, or the kind of smaller banks that are maybe um, IRB aspirants. So they they want to apply for for some of the advanced uh, model approaches, um, and there's going to be a narrowing of the gap between those standardised approach banks and. Um, the kind of advanced approach banks. So from a, a competition perspective, from a UK market, it's probably uh, beneficial, I think, you know, o- overall. Um, but as you said, you know, the, the, the UK needed to kind of balance that, um, you know, international versus domestic uh, competition angle. Uh, broadly, I, I think, you know, firms' perspectives have done that relatively well because um, it's always a difficult challenge to meet, you know, the... If you're negatively affecting the the large banks from a UK perspective, you know you still need to think about the, the international angles as well. I think for smaller and mid-tier banks, there's also the additional um, challenge of having the potential choice between adopting the Basel 3.1 regime or moving on to the PRA's proposed strong and simple regime, um, many of the details of which remain unknown at this stage. So I think some of the smaller firms are certainly in an interesting position right now where you know, they can't, or, or capital planning is quite challenging given they don't know what their capital requirements will look like in three to five years' time, but they'll ultimately have to make a choice between a simpler regime that's likely to be much more conservative and the fundamental changes that the Basel 3.1 regime bring. Brilliant. Thank you. So, I mean, thinking about some of the numbers here, I do like um, my regulatory geekdom. So we've got Basel 3.1 reforms here uh, and it's taken us quite a while to get here. You know, I think this was originally agreed maybe five years ago, something like that. So uh, and actually also we've also commented on some of the economic cycle we're facing at the moment, too, where, where stuff's changing. So when do we get to Basel 3.2 or Basel 4 or are we going to skip Basel 4 and go to Basel 6 like we did with it? I mean, what, what's next, Steph? Um, I mean, consultants had been calling this package Basel IV for years, much to regulators' dismay, Um, but we've settled on Basel 3.1 for now. Um, I think the focus internationally, certainly at the Basel level, is about full and timely implementation of this current suite of reforms. We've got phase-in of some of the measures, including the output floor, extending until 2030, which will be more than 20 years after the original crisis these reforms were designed in response to. Um, We are also in a fundamentally different economic environment, political environment, as you said, um, since these reforms were agreed. But ultimately, there are aspects that were very specifically designed in response to issues observed in the last crisis. But in general, the framework is um, deemed to be complete and fit for purpose going forward. Um, It will be interesting to see how pro-cyclical some elements of the proposals could end up being in a downturn environment 
um, things like the the internal ratings um, approach for unrated corporates or the um, requirement that property valuations um, are not updated upwards but they are reduced when property prices fall. Um, so there are some interesting elements that might play out over coming years there. Um, internationally, I think in the next the next few years, we're going to see a focus on evaluating the consistency of jurisdictions implementation of this package through the uh, RCAP program. And then we know the focus is on other emerging risks like crypto and AI and machine learning. It's probably worth saying that this um, package just about broke the Basel process. Like in terms of getting to an agreement, there's some areas like sovereigns, they just couldn't agree on and they just didn't come up with anything at all. Um, but, but certainly we have some obscure numbers in the package, like a floor of 72.5% because they couldn't get to a number that they all agreed on. Um, and a number of discretions, uh, national discretions in the package, which kind of undermine some of the arguments about it being a, a kind of consistent and comparable package across jurisdictions. Um, and there's some topics or areas such as calibration of derivatives, where again, they couldn't agree, they didn't get to the right outcome. And what we get is divergence in each of the different countries as they try to resolve that. Uh, separately in you know the EU, the UK and the US are all diverging from the Basel standards in that area because Basel couldn't agree ultimately. Um, so not much appetite for things going back to the Basel um, committee in, in the short term, but they do definitely need to deal with those emerging issues or new risks like crypto, digital, digital finance, um, because that's where you know some of the future risks are going to be for the banking sector. They can't can't work out their seventy two point five percent flaws, and I'm I'm sure the thorny issue of AI and machine learning is going to be something they'll, they'll absolutely have no problems with at all over the next twenty years. That's really interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you both. That was a really insightful and interesting conversation. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation too, and thank you for joining us. As always, please do subscribe to future episodes and rate and review the series as it helps other listeners to find us. If you'd like to hear more from us on risk and regulation, please do look for our, our regular publications on our website, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter on regulatory developments. We'll be back next month with our next episode. Thank you. <laughs>